You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to trash since Welcome back to the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. I am Large William. Across the border from me and not as far away as uh, the Bluegrass State, but in the Garden State, is our dear friend, longtime friend, longtime gent, uh, our good friend Brian from uh, the Garden State. Brian, uh, welcome. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, it's been a long time coming, I think. We've, we've chatted about it a few times and I'm just thrilled to be able to uh, make some time and be on here. Absolutely. You're as busy a man as I know. And uh, the fact that you're able to carve out a little bit of time is greatly appreciated. I know Sammy, speaking of time, he's having a good old time. He's down in Reno, Nevada for a uh, a baby oil wrestling uh, refereeing gig. You know, it's side hustle he's got going on. So, <laughs> you know, pays the bills. He'll be back next week and we'll... Uh, <laughs> We'll link back up, but in the meantime, we're in good hands here uh, with our good friend Brian. Yeah, we've um, we've been trying to get something going for for over a year now, maybe even longer. And it's just uh, you're busy, I'm busy, we're busy, and then finally I um, I reached out, and luckily the stars aligned, and and we're able to make this happen. So of course, uh, being gentlemen, you know, I knew that there was a couple of films. Figuring that you did us the solid of coming on and saving our bacon. It's only gentlemanly to let you pick a film that, uh, you know, you felt like you wanted to talk about and dig in on. And why don't you let everyone know what we're going to be covering this week? Okay, yeah. When um, <clears throat> It was a little bit of a uh, little bit of an undertaking to kind of pull it down to one film. Uh, it's We've talked numerous times, like you said, and, and it's like, man, pick a film. And I guess that's sometimes <laughs> the hardest thing to do, right? Um, when there's a vast catalog of movies, plus everything that you've covered over the years, I'm going, man, all right, how am I going to do justice to this? So I went back and I thought of a movie that I really wanted to talk about because it's a film that was very dear to me. Um, but I'm not too precious about it. It hit me at the right time, um, right, uh, going into high school and, um, it's, 
from a director that, you know, I have fun with. It's a subject matter that I have fun with and I wanted to share it with you guys. So it's Dark Man from 1990. And that's what we're going to be covering this week. That's cool. Now, let let me do a little bit of a deeper dive before we get into some of the other stuff that we're, we do here. Um, you'd mentioned that it was something that you you loved but you weren't precious about and i think it's it's i'm kind of glad you said that because it's one of those things where sometimes when you you know you have a friend on and they pick a film you think okay well i, I like this film quite a bit but you know you don't want to you don't want to step on their their cinematic valentine and not saying i'm going to with this one at all because it had been many years since i'd seen it Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, this film's now 35 years old, essentially 33 years old. And it came at a time when the cinematic landscape in Hollywood was very different. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is something where I wanted to also pick a film where if this was back in the day and you and I are just two guys hanging out going, what are we going to watch from the video store? Um, coming from that lifestyle where you know i worked at a video store and you walked in and said hey man what's give me something to watch you know i'm kind of in a mood for something where i can sit down throw some popcorn on and have a good time this is something that i would say you know what have you seen this yet no sit down and watch it let me know what you think and what's kind of deceptively good about this film and not to get into too much of the review before we talk about the film itself but when you think about all the different uh, genres and influences that it kind of brings to the table in a, in a reasonably organic way, right? Like it's uh, well, I guess we'll save a lot of the deeper dive stuff, but just thinking about it now, um, it, it touches on a lot of different things and a lot of different influences pretty seamlessly. So that's uh, yeah, that's very cool. Um, OK, excellent. Uh, listen, I'm curious. I know you're, like I said, a busy man. You seem to make time for uh, for film when you can. What have you seen as of late that's uh, really lit your world on fire? Uh, let's see. So being as busy as I am, uh, it's harder and harder like for all of us to make time for movies. But I uh, made enough time to watch uh, The Outfit, um, which came out last year. Um, I think it's on streaming. I'm not – it's either on Peacock or Paramount+. Plus. Um now it's a there's no big players that i was aware of that were in in the in the film um but it's the trailer when it came out hooked me and are you familiar with it at all when you said the outfit i was thinking of the john flynn movie with karen black joe don baker and robert so this is this just came out um last year and it's it's set in 1950s chicago um it's got uh it's a story of a Taylor, who has a shop and there's these uh, the mob in Chicago is using his shop as kind of like a way station for uh, messages. Yeah, a box in the back uh, room where they'll go and deposit their their messages. Uh, he has a secretary slash, you know, uh, assistant that uh, works for him. And basically it's it's a film that's set in one location. It's just the shop, which I really enjoyed about it. Uh, I love those just, you know, single location, you know, films where everything kind of happens. It could have been like a stage play. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so it, it's basically where 
you know, you're finding out about this tailor, his assistants asking him, you know, you're, he's from originally from London, um, from the UK, excuse me. And he, uh, basically she says, you, you've been all over the world. Why, why here? And he goes, you know, here's just as good as any other place and gives her an off the cuff answer. And you kind of feel that there's a little something more to it. And as the movie unfolds and the events unfold, uh, you have the, without giving anything too much away, um, the catalyst to get the, the movie rolling is the boss's son ends up being shot and they come to the shop after hours, uh, the son and another uh, gangster, and they basically uh, have to hunker down at the shop to find out like what's going on. And there's a rat and they have to find out who the rat is. And that's pretty much sets the table for the rest of the film. And I, if for anyone who hasn't seen it, I don't want to go into it too much to ruin it uh, because it's it's actually a really well done uh, film. And I, I didn't do enough uh, research to check into director and, and, and the actors, but they weren't actors that I were was immediately familiar with. Um, but it's just a really well done um, single uh, setting film. And I can't can't recommend it enough to just go in blind if you know nothing about it check it out because it's it's a time well spent it really is i had actually started watching this um with Teresa, and and not for any reason it was good mm-hmm. mark rylance is the lead in it and That's, he's a fantastic actor yep uh, zoe deutsch is in it it's yeah it's got a good cast for sure but i um i just never got back around to it but and i think this was uh just looking as you were talking graham moore was the filmmaker it's his debut film mm-hmm. from what i saw and from what you've just said mm-hmm. it's pretty assured debut film from a guy i would have not imagined it was his debut film because yeah. it's it's shot competently enough um to where you think like you said it's it's such a sure hand with everything that he does um and the way that the the pacing is uh it's it's pretty yeah pretty good film so like i said i can't recommend that enough um right. and then beyond that <clears throat> switch gears to um last night uh come back home um after you know a long weekend and then the wife goes hey um you know super mario brothers is on uh, streaming now <laughs> and i was like really <laughs> and i said you know what that's the perfect turn my brain off just enjoy it uh popcorn flick you know that that's you know wholesome and it's going to be i know it's going to be a fun time there's going to be little nods in it which there were to all the games uh, my wife's a big uh nintendo player she's got the switch she played the wii and even back to you know i have all the systems so all the way back to the original nes she's a big mario fan so i knew she was gonna love it and you know being of <clears throat> being of a certain age um that's i was there when nintendo came out so it's all pure nostalgia for me so it hits us both you know we're the same age so i guess it should be we um it hits us both um with the same amount of nostalgia through it to go oh those are you know from that game and that game and i gotta say i was a little nervous i think like everybody was with um with the uh voice casting of mario uh, <laughs> with chris pratt um but they maneuver it in such a way where and in my opinion i think they 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 kind of took the air out of that argument right off the bat uh, because um have you seen the movie i have not Okay, so I'm not I'm not going to ruin anything, but they they kind of take the air out of that argument right right off the the bat, because um, if you're familiar with the original Super Mario Brothers 
song from the show. Yep. They they use that as a commercial for the Mario Brothers, uh, Mario and Luigi. And then they're they're sitting there, they're playing the song. You see a, a commercial for the Mario Brothers, and it, it backs out immediately. And you see them two watching it, and then they start talking in their normal voice. And they go, you know, or in the voices that they use for the movie. And they're like, man, that thing's, you know, that thing's great. That's not just a commercial. It, it you know, it belongs in a cinema, which, of course, it's, you know, hilarious because you would be watching it in the cinema. But then they're like, you know, do you think that the accents were a little too much, too over the top? And he's like, nah, it'll be good. Don't worry about it. And there's a little, I guess, uh, guy who looks like the original Mario from Donkey Kong sits in there and, he, you know, uses the Mario voice. And he's like, it's a perfect. He's like, Yahoo. You know, and it, it's hilarious. So and then from there, you just kind of at least for me, I pushed that part of my brain that was going to sit there and go, he's not going to sound like Mario. This is going to be weird for yep. two hours to hear him talk like a normal guy. It kind of pushed that to the side and, and um, kind of made it just a non-issue. So I think at least for me and, you know, I know Sandy enjoyed it as well. So it's yeah, it's it's a good movie to watch um, with the kids. It's It's a fun time. Um, that's good man it's it's hard to get quality family entertainment for young ones right mm-hmm. it really is and stuff that will cater to uh the the paying members of the audience as well as <laughs> the young members right so when you can kind of walk that tightrope and it, it's funny we're you know we're in an age when i think it's <laughs> uh, there's more awareness from studios and I don't want to just call it fan service because I think that sometimes is, is, you know, using a derogatory thing, but the will of the people or the will of the cinematic uh, masses, they, they'll acknowledge that. And that's clearly an acknowledgement of, Hey, listen, like we get it. We're going to, we're going to diffuse this right away. Mm-hmm. And so you can enjoy the film and it doesn't have to hang it. Like it's exactly like the elephant in the room here. Right. So that's cool. Yeah. And it was, and again, without spoiling anything, since you haven't seen it, it's just it's a nice little adventure film. Um, it's it, it sits in the same realm as something, you know, adventure wise is like the Goonies or something like that. It's Mario going on an adventure to save his brother. And that's, you know, where we go for, and save, you know, all the worlds from, you know, Bowser. Um, you know, if you've seen the, the trailers, it's no, you know, uh, spoiler that, you know, Jack Black plays Bowser does a good job at reeling in most of the jack blackness um it does come through a little bit but it's not again not so egregious that you're like oh my god it's jack black doing jack black but it's a you know it's a fun time and uh, yeah i so those are my two that i watched recently both i can recommend without um you know too much struggle because they they were both good films for completely opposite reasons one's a very subdued single location film and the other one's this broad adventure animated epic um you know telling of mario's story so it's uh yeah they couldn't be more polar opposites in their delivery but they're both you know well worth your time cool did you ever see wreck it ralph man yeah yeah i saw um both right uh both ralphs both Ralph. so i i the second one i didn't love as much but i really love the first yeah. one and i was so pleasantly surprised and it sounds to me and i could be off but just the spirit of it and everything I watched it and I thought, wow, like this is actually a good kids film, you know, and I yeah. really loved it with my kids. And it kind of feels like this is the vibe I'm getting from you talking about this Mario film. Yeah, it's I would say it's in the exact same wheelhouse. Um, 
the exact uh, you get the same type of emotional uh, journey. So yep. yeah, it's that definitely uh, definitely the same thing. So if you enjoyed Wreck It Ralph, the original one, then yeah, you're this is probably going to hit you in the in the sweet spot. That's cool. Very cool. I'll have to see about digging into that one. Anything else you want to talk about before I talk about a few here? No, no. I'm curious to see what you've been watching. Cool, man. So I'm trying to remember where I left off, to be honest with you. Uh, let me actually say this before I we say anything else. I, I want to acknowledge this, and I, I would have liked to have opened the show, but in true form, kind of bumbled through it, and I was excited to to talk to you, so I it slipped my mind. But um, as I was watching Darkman uh, this afternoon, uh, I, I, I saw a picture of a filmmaker as near and dear to my heart as any pop up on someone's feed. And I didn't see the, the, the caption, but whenever you see like a post, I always, my heart kind of skips a beat because I think, Oh no, don't tell me something's happened to them. And sure enough, it was a picture of William Friedkin and William Friedkin passed away today. And, uh, I just, I want to give him his roses because, um, for me, uh, not to, to sidebar too much here, but for me, you know, he's he's in sort of I could count on one hand, you know, the filmmakers that mean the most to me in terms of their cinematic output and in terms of how much I respect the way they approached the medium. And Friedkin to me, you know, he was one of those 70s uh, Hollywood guys, 70s American guys that came out um you know, had the balls to kind of been and switch to swing his dick the way he wanted to do it. He marched the beat of his own drum. He made the films the way he wanted to. He took major risks and he stayed true to himself and stayed true to his vision for each project he was on. And, you know, he was still making really energetic, um, really great films late in his career. Killer Joe, he was in his seventies. Bug, he was probably in his seventies. Both those films have the energy of someone 30, 40 years younger to hear freaking talk about filmmakers, Fukusaku or Ray or Ozu, to hear him speak about art, um, to just hear him talk about film, the passion and the knowledge and to approach it in a very humble way, but a very engaging way was just something I always really admired. So I want to give him his roses and just say uh, thanks for everything. You know, he was, he was one of a kind, man. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. I mean, it's just, you know, 87 seems way too young, um, which is, you know, I mean, he had a lot of uh, great, great, great output in, in the years he was here, but it, it still seems that 87 is too young. And it's going to be weird being in a world where he's not around. He's not around to, you know, make, you know, comments on film or to, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, being a, you know, someone to talk to about for the younger generation to, you know, turn to and be like, hey, you know, there's one of the, you know, I don't know, say Mount Rushmore, but yeah, it's it's up there, you know, he's a, and to turn to and be like, hey, I can talk to this guy. So for not to have that and, you know, someone to still speak to and then, but we'll always have his films. Absolutely. Right. His, he'll live on forever, thankfully. Um, but now I'll get back to the regularly scheduled programming, which is a couple of things I've watched. So uh, I had never seen Step Brothers and the boys are going through this phase where they want to watch comedies. And, and you know, some of the stuff we've watched them maybe is a little raunchy. But I think about 
stuff we've watched and even some of the horror stuff we've watched. And I try not to, you know, try not to be too much of a Puritan with them with some things within reason. So they wanted to watch Step Brothers, and uh, I think they're the right age to really enjoy it. So we put it on. I'd never seen it. By this point, I was kind of burnt, kind of burned out on Feral. Uh, so we watched it. Had some good moments. You know, it definitely had some good moments, but it felt to me like, you know, uh, sort of the <laughs> the idiot man-child thing where it's been after about 45 minutes. You know, it, it's got some funny stuff in it for sure, but I guess I'm not the demographic anymore. Um, yeah, the shit yeah. can wear thin. Right, it does. It's like, yeah. listen, again, it's like that old thing I would say about I like fudge, but I don't want fudge all night. So... You know, but it still has some moments. It, it was fine. Uh, watched Miami Connection on the big screen with our buddy Kurt, and he'd never seen it. And it played here at a theater to a very, very receptive, <laughs> very vocal uh, crowd. They had like a, a Dragon Sound, tri- like a, a Miami Connection or Dragon Sound tribute bands kind of dueling. Oh, nice. So, so that was kind of fun. Uh, and then they led into the film and. And it was great, you know. It's 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 a great film to see with the crowd. Obviously, we had a blast. I hadn't seen it since we'd covered it, you know, many moons ago. So it's held up. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad it had. Uh, next up, Braden and I went to see. We were kind of torn. We were going to go see um, Insidious. I think it's the red, the Red Door one um, because him and I have seen all the Insidious films together. But then I kept tracking Talk to Me, this Australian horror film. And I really wanted to check it out. So I showed him the trailer. I said, hey, you know, which one do you want to see? So he said, let's go see Talk to Me. So we watched it and really dug this one. Have you uh, have you caught anything on this one? Like any trailers or any? No, no, I've heard of it, but I, I, I've kind of missed the trailer somehow. And um, but I'm hearing, you know, everyone that's seen it so far has said good things. So I'm assuming that's where you might be going with it. That's where I'm going. It's fantastic. Right. I would say, you know, if I'm going to do a top five horror films for the year, this would be in there. Right. It, it has, I think, some DNA uh, similar to a filmmaker we're going to talk about today, Sam Raimi. But it never feels um, like it's kind of just tracing, you know, like tracing the drawing, so to speak. It it feels very contemporary. Um and they got a great idea with this, with the sort of the hook on this one. It's a bit kind of monkey paw. Um, it's it's good. It's really good. I don't want to say too too much about it, but I really dug it. I thought the leads were great in it. Um, they have actually convincing, you know, young actors in it as opposed to thirty somethings playing uh, <laughs> playing teenagers. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it was a good one, really good one. I'd recommend checking it out. Uh, to, you know, if everyone gets a chance to see it. Before it splits from the cinema, check it out. Uh, the Philippou brothers have a very bright future, man. They're they're good filmmakers, uh, and they don't get you with cheap scares either. Like they really, they're, they're solid, man. They're patient. And Sophie Wilde, she's great in it. She's the lead. She anchors it wonderfully. So yeah, it's uh, it's a good one. I would high high recommend. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you is you hear the clanging in the background at my house. Is um, do you have your watch on by any chance? Do I have my watch on? Uh, yes, I do. Excellent. So you what know. What time is it? 
I will tell you, my friend, what time it is. It's time for this or that. Okay, so it is time. Well played, my friend. Well played. Uh, before I get into any, I will defer to you. Uh, any that you have that you've come up with? I've got a few up my sleeve, if up my trench coat, if uh, as it were. <laughs> um, let's see. Ooh, I've I've got one food related um, that I was thinking about, and I don't I don't believe you guys did this yet. Sour cream or cream cheese? Ooh, this is a good one, man. This is a good one. I'm gonna go cream cheese myself because I love a bagel with cream cheese. I can have a baked potato with a little bit of butter green onions, other things, but I don't know. I just, uh, I'm a little more cream cheese. Plus there's, there's the whole cheesecake thing, right? So yep. Yep. I can go cream cheese, man. What about you? All right. I So I'm probably, um, I'm going to side with you. Um, definitely cream cheese more than sour cream uh, because of the, the cheesecake. You hit the nail on the head. Um, but also because, you know, it's, it's, you can use it for breakfast. You can use it for dessert. Yeah. Um, you can, you know, use it in, in recipes. I've used it instead of uh, heavy cream. Um, you can use cream cheese as an additive in, in any recipes. Yes. You use heavy cream. So it's a versatile thing. I, so that is my, you know, that's why I think cream cheese is better. Although sour cream is a very close second because yeah, it's not a runaway. You know, yeah, there's there's so so it's 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 a tough one, but yeah, for those there's reasons. And funny enough, my my daughter who is now vegan, uh, she when she was younger, she actually decided not to make the choice, and she would have her bagels with cream cheese and sour cream on top. Really? And she swore that it was like the best thing in the world. I had it. It's not bad. Not my first go-to, but she loved it like it was the second coming. I thought you were going to say it's not the best thing in the world. <laughs> no, no. Listen, it's not that bad. It's not my go-to. Like, I can't – I don't wake up in the morning and go, I can't wait to put some cream cheese on my bagel and a dollop of sour cream on top. Yeah, like, yeah. No, no. <laughs> no but, uh, yeah, she would – every time she had a bagel, that was her her go-to um, prior to becoming, you know, vegan as she got older. Um, yeah. yeah, but it was it was the wackiest thing. Um, that we're like, we'd look at her and she'd go, yeah, I'd like my sour cream with my bagel. And we're like, okay, all right. You know, so the key for that to really pop for me would be that bagel still has to be warm. Yes, for sure. Okay. Nice toasted everything bagel. Uh, I have, uh, next time you're, you're in town, there's a bagel spot. I got to take you to, um, all-star bagels. They make this multi-grain everything with um a swiss on top and it is a slice of heaven i'm telling so i'm gonna give you a little bagel uh little bagel tip 
you may know this already, but I like to put um, sliced cucumber with my plain cream cheese. Mm. It's really good. It's refreshing. Yeah. It kind of cuts kind of the heaviness of the dairy. So yeah. Sliced cucumbers with uh, like a plain cream cheese. It's uh, it's good. You know, I think I gotta I gotta write this down, man. I think. Let me just see here. I just got an idea for something. I can't tell you about it because it oh, right. to you. But um, yeah, I will take you up on that. Okay, cool. Uh, I got one for you then. Actually, coincidentally, this is a nice segue into one of mine. <laughs> Salsa or guacamole? Ooh. And I'm normally a um, mix everything on the nachos type of guy. So <laughs> yeah, of course. If I had to choose... Let me see. All right. Uh, by sheer numbers of like my percentages, I'd have to go with salsa for what I eat more. But yep. if you're asking me like gun to my head, I think I might pull guacamole. And the reason why is it comes down to breakfast again. There's nothing like some rye toast with guacamole, some hot pepper flakes, maybe a little hard boiled egg on top. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's it's so good. Um, so yeah, that's and then having that the the guac too. It's 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 versatile. I can eat it with a bunch of stuff and, and make, you know it's so I usually put on a bunch of things. The salsa, you know, although salsa I I'll do an omelet too with with salsa on it and then maybe put a little guac on top. So they usually are hand in hand. So it's a real that's a tough one, man. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm fl- I'm I'm going back and forth in my own, you know, discussion in my head here. All right. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm gonna stick with guacamole. I'm gonna stick with guacamole. So I'm picking up what you're putting down. I, I love salsa. I really do. And I might eat salsa a little more than I eat guac, but guac's hard to beat, man. I I will take guac. Um, despite my if I just say one's banished forever from the universe, I'm probably gonna banish salsa, and that sucks, but. I'll have guac and <laughs> sour cream to keep me warm, I guess. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's a few jalapenos in the in the next dish over, so it'll I'll muddle through it. But no, I'm I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. Uh, you got any more? You want me to throw a few more at you? Uh, throw a couple. I'll see if I can come up with anything because I was trying to see if I had anything else up my sleeve. That was my one main one. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. Okay, I got one for you. Um, Sam Raimi. I'll tell you what, I'm going to keep going until you have any. And if you don't, you don't. It's all good. All right. Uh, Sam, because I have an alarm that goes off every night at 830 and it just says this or that. So if I'm not doing anything, I'll try to just, you know, put a few. I'll text myself a few of them so I have them in the bank. Uh, Sam Raimi or Wes Craven? Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, oh, man. Well, as someone who grew up on Elm Street, uh you might think I'd lean towards Wes. And let's say for body of work, I don't know. Let me see. This is man, this that, that's that is not an easy that's that's like picking mom or dad. Like, you know, like, <laughs> you know. Um that's dirty pool, sir. Um we're <laughs> uh I would have to say that I'm probably gonna go Ramey. And I can't believe that I'm saying it, but if I really think about it and then what he brought over the course of his career so far, I I like his output, I think, more consistently than I like 
Cravens, although early Craven, you know, he was hitting it out of the park. I think as time went on, I think Raimi adapted more into the mainstream, but he was able to put still put more stuff out that was kind of, you know, grabbing attention where Craven kind of, I don't know, but then he's got Scream. Ah, man, that's a tough one. But I'm, I'll probably, <laughs> yeah, it is. It's like, I'm the, man, we're playing these. It's so much easier listening to this than it is actually working it out. You guys make it look way too easy. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'll go with, I'll I'll stick with Raimi. I don't want to be too wishy-washy. Um, and simply because, uh, I think that between the, the Evil Dead films, um, the Spider-Man, uh, at least the first two, third one, we won't say too much about, um, and then his, (laughs) yeah, and even stuff like Quick and the Dead, I think that, uh, I just I like his output a little bit better. I think it's more consistent. So, yeah, gun to my head, I'm I'm picking Raimi. Although I never met Raimi in person, I did meet Craven in person, and he was a sweetheart to to my son uh, Tyler when he met him. Um, yeah, I still have to pick Raimi, but you know. <laughs> That's cool, man. That's cool. So I'll be completely honest. As silly and and as large of an oversight as it seems, I was absolutely Craven. And then you mentioned the Spider-Man films and Quick and the Dead, um, which I still haven't seen Quick and the Dead all the way through in one sitting. So I have to uh, remedy that. But in spite of how good his Spider-Man films are, I got to go Craven. Uh, just because for me, Nightmare, the, the early Nightmare films are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Scream, fantastic. Hills Have Eyes is good. Last House on the Left. Yeah. Up the Stairs. Swamp Thing which is fun. Yeah. Uh, Deadly Blessing. One I haven't, Deadly Friend, which is yeah, a great Deadly. film, but got to get great, you know, has a, an all-time kill. Oh, uh, yeah. And then one that I actually haven't seen of Cravens, but I'm going to drop in the family, maybe even as early as tonight, uh, is Red Eye, which I've, I've always heard great things about. Red Eye is really, is really good. I enjoyed it. I have not watched it in a number of years. I think I saw that in the theater and then um, I own it on Blu-ray. I've watched it, a, you know, a few times or, or dvd i watched a few times over the years but yeah it's a it's a nice um tight little suspense film and um that's actually when i met him when he was doing the tour for that he came to uh our local horror con uh here and he was doing uh signings and stuff and that's where i met him that was during that time frame so yeah um i recommend it i think you'll like it i think you'll dig it big time yeah and our kids love killian murphy because of scarecrow and now they both really dig oppenheimer so it's gonna be cool for them to see him in a film where he's younger it's a thriller it's craven you know so speaking of craven i just i don't know how i didn't know about this before did you know that in 86 craven did a a 47 minute i guess made for disney uh film about I, i think it's a brother and sister they are kind of amateur sleuths and they stumble onto a bit of a mystery and it's like two kids and their dog and one of the this the boy is played by noah hathaway atreyu from never running story really pat hingles oh. in it um yeah and it's like they got a dog uh wow i'm gonna see this it's on the disney channel apparently what's the name of it case busters 
Case Busters. Wow, no, that that slipped completely under the radar. I had no idea, and uh, I'm gonna have to check it out. 47 minutes. You know what? I mean, yeah, I can skate by that. No problem. Yeah, uh, and I mean, he does. He did other TV stuff as well. Like he uh, didn't he didn't he direct uh, Summer of Evil with Linda Blair? Is that him? Oh, let me check. I'm in his thing right now. A Summer of Fear. Summer of Fear. That's it. I've actually never seen that, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's not. It's it's not too bad. It's. I don't want to say it plays similar uh, with some of the tropes that are in The Exorcist, but yeah, it's 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 a witchcraft. Uh, you know, falls in with the you know uh, new age witchcraft stuff and and ends up. Uh, kind of quasi possessed or something if i remember correctly it's been been a little bit since i watched it um but i picked that up on on a i think it's a double set blu-ray or it might just be a single blu-ray but um at one of the i think i might have picked it up at one of the the horathons or not the horathons the um yeah the 24-hour horathons that we go to so yeah i would i recommend it it's definitely worth a watch so I'm going to check that out because apparently it's got Fran Drescher in it too. And I'm a big yes. Fran fan. Yep. So that's, I'm in my dog's losing her mind. She's trying to get my, uh, my black beans and rice here. Um, okay. I'll hit you with a couple more here. Um, the burbs or weird science. Ooh, weird science. I think I know which way you're going to go. But I don't really have anything scientific to base it on, no pun intended. Okay. But uh, let's see where you land on this. All right. So, man, they're both. If, yeah, I'm going to say the burbs um, because, um, one, I've seen it more, believe it or not, uh, because my wife also likes the burbs. Yeah. Uh, so we've, I probably watched that more maybe not completely, but it's definitely been on TV so many times where it's like, oh, the burbs are on. And I think I've used lines from that movie more than <laughs> I've used from Weird Science. It's like, that's how it starts. They're chanting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and things like that. So I would definitely have to go with the uh, with the burbs because I think it's just – as much fun as Weird Science is, I think Burbs has the stronger cast, and I think they 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 pull off the the silliness a little bit better. Um, and I mean, it's a di- slightly different type of film, but I would say that um, I think it's definitely Burbs in in my book, and it's got you know Tom Hanks, so you clearly can't go wrong. He he rarely does something that stinks to join up. I mean, if ever. <laughs> True. So. Yeah, no, I, I think, uh, yeah, definitely the burbs. Nice, nice. Well, I am I am on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, I like the burbs. I saw the burbs in theater when it came out. I remembered the burbs very fondly. I watched it with the kids a few years ago. They could not get into it. I liked it still, but not as fondly as I remembered it. I seem to remember it was longer than I, like it was, it's longer than I thought it was. Um, plus... We get Kelly LeBrock, just final form Kelly, Kelly LeBrock. We get Bill Paxton as mm-hmm. like an all-time douchebag big brother. Oh, yeah. That. Uh, Anthony Michael Hall, Suzanne Snyder, and Ju- uh, Judy Ronson. Uh, great. Robert Downey Jr., 
Um, just a fun one. Just a fun. But they're both. I think they're both classics of the decade. I mean, there's no right answer there. But no, I did think for some reason I just had a vibe. Burbs was your jam. I just. Yeah. Definitely. I don't know. Maybe you'd said something to pass you, but I was. I was quite. I was. I would have been shocked if you had said weird science. <laughs> That's cool, man. Okay. Uh, I got one more here for you. Oh well, I'm gonna let me let me hit, hit you with one. one. Yeah, yeah, hit me with one. So we're gonna do Nike or Adidas. This is tough, man. Oh, okay. <laughs> so high school, it seemed like everyone had Nike, and mm-hmm. not everyone. The Adidas tracksuits and everything were popping, but mm-hmm. I. It seemed like everyone was Nike, 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 and I was contrarian. I've always been a bit of a contrarian, so I was like, nope, Adidas. Shell toes. Shell tops? Nope. Yeah, man. Always, always. And Converse, so I was like, nope, not Nike. And now as I've gotten older, it's shifted. Now I'm Nike, and I still I still have Adidas stuff and whatnot, but I'm 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 Nike. I'm Nike at this point in the in the game. What about you? So I would do Adidas for uh, if I was playing, you know, soccer. Yes. Um, any uh, all my sports shoes, uh, I would definitely I was doing Adidas. So all my cleats were Adidas. That's the way I went. If uh, tennis, Adidas. Uh, I had my Sambas. Had the yeah Sambas, the, man. They were they were my jam. Had them in like almost every color. I had the black, the red, the green. Uh, you know, I didn't never got the yellow. Um, but I didn't think I'd pull that off like the mustard yellow. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a tough color to pair with, so. <laughs> it is, man. And no, you got, when you got to accessorize it, mustard yellows are out on the vine. Yeah. So you could do a mustard yellow jacket or like a sweatshirt. So I have, th- you know, and that can go with like, you know, you can do a blue jeans, you can do something like it. But then if you get the mustard yellow yeah. shoes and you don't have a mustard yellow other apparel to go with it it's hard to pull off it's hard to blend that with anything yeah that's um, true. so yeah and then um yeah i would do the uh i was you know the air jordans like everybody else you know back in the day which i still wish i had the you know like oh, 10 pairs God. of jordans i had back in the day yeah um and kept them nice but yeah. <laughs> that was my that was my jam from probably seventh grade all the way through high school where you know my jordans um just for basketball. So I didn't have didn't have Adidas for, for basketball. But then um yeah, as I got older, um I had you know I'm from Jersey. So it's no no secret that track suits are big in Jersey. Yeah, man. Soprano time. So I think I had a track suit in like every every kind of color. I looked like I worked for the Russian mob. Um <laughs> it was, you know, uh we had our uh you know, our white, uh, what we call guinea tees, uh, you know, and our, and then we had our zip up track suits oh, and everything. So, um, my, I had Adidas with that, man. That was, that was what it was in the early 2000s. And then, um, tearaway pants. You remember those? Yeah. Yeah. I you still got a pair of Adidas tearaways. Yeah. yeah, man. Yeah. And they're silver and black because my wife decided that's what I needed one year for Christmas. And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to, you know, do with these things but they're like they are literally silver with black stripe so but uh yeah and then um tyler got me a, a black and white and you know old school black uh with white stripe 
um, Adidas, uh, you know, set, which I still have because that's a classic. You can't get rid of that. No. Uh, but yeah, so yeah, as as I get older, I mean, I, I would say I did the uh, I did the switch too, where I think I went to more Adidas though than the Nikes, which is kind of funny because I have, and I'm like, yeah, I think I've had more Adidas than I've had Nikes. Yeah, so, it's funny. I did the inverse. It's a clo- it's a it's a close one either way because yeah. I've worn like rugby boots or like rugby cleats. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've worn Nike. I've worn Adidas. Right now I'm wearing Adidas. Last last year I had Nike. You know, it's it's that age old thing. They're both great brands. It's funny though. I'll tell you what. You remember like in the 80s, like the clean. Oh, stay one. Shout out Stan Smiths too. Shout out Stan Smiths. Adidas mm-hmm. Stan Smiths, just clean, yeah. clean. But I've been getting a lot of targeted advertising from Reebok lately. And, like, you remember those clean, like, white low cuts? They look like the Stan Smiths, but Reebok had them? Yeah. So now I'm getting all kinds of targeted advertising on on Instagram for those. And I'm like, man, these look pretty good. I might have to I might have to get a pair, but who knows? We'll see. <laughs> but, uh, okay, cool, man. I got one more for you here. Uh, we'll keep it in the 80s. Lisa Lisa or Sheila E? Ooh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Oh man. I Lisa. I knee jerk reaction, I think I'm gonna go Lisa Lisa, she's got the cult jam. I can't I mean <laughs> but yeah, that's another tough one. I mean, how do you that's that's almost like and to to retort I would say, you know, are you gonna do something like, you know, Tiffany or Debbie Gibson? You know, that was just, another one I had. <laughs> yeah, that that's a tough one. Like it's, you know, I don't know. It's kind of like peanut butter and jelly. They go together, and they Dude. probably went together in our dreams. Yeah, they did. <laughs> I'm not Only lie. in our dreams. <laughs> as real as they may seem. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. So yeah, they, uh, I'll, my knee jerk, Lisa, Lisa. All right, I'm gonna. Okay, so I have a recency bias because that's okay. a tough one. I've always loved them. Mm-hmm. Friday night, I was a little under the weather. I was by myself. And Criterion dropped a nice, like a hip-hop hip hop series. So they got a bunch of movies from the 80s, 90s, 2000s. Mm-hmm. And they got Crush Groove in HD. Oh. Yeah. So I'm watching Crush Groove, and I'm just loving it. I haven't seen it in years, and I'll talk about it, you know, maybe next week. Um but of course, Sheila E's very prominently featured in that. And I'm, yep. Um, yep, Sheila E's it. And <laughs> uh, it's just, yeah, it's what a great, great film, man. And she's great in it. So that's a tough one. You could, tomorrow I could say Lisa Lisa because they're just talented, beautiful, um, just seem to have their finger on the pulse of uh, culture at the time. And uh, yeah, but I'll, I'll, go, I'll, go, I'll go Sheila. So that's cool. Um, all right, we are going to take a short break and then we're going to go put on our, <laughs> our Adidas track suits, our undershirts, and we're going to go back to 1990 with Sam Raimi and Liam Neeson. We will be right back. We'll 
are going to get into 1990s Sam Raimi jam. As Sadie wants to inject a little um, knowledge into the episode on my behalf, uh, we're going to get to Darkman. So you pick this one. I'm going to ask you, Bri, do you want to lead on this one? Do you want me to lead on it? How do you want to shake it out? Well, you know what? You, you've got more experience leading than I do, so I'll I'll let you take the lead and I'll follow because I'm just curious. You've watched it less than I have, so I'm curious yep. to hear, um, you know, a, a less seasoned set of uh, eyes on it. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad to do that. Um, so, yeah, as you and I had talked about off the air, I'd seen this, but I'd seen it once, maybe twice. Um. So I was kind of curious where it was going to sit for me on a rewatch, um, having now lived through, you know, we're in an age when superhero films are the norm. I mean, it seems like every other week there's a superhero film. Um, what do we have right now? We have Blue Beetle opening next weekend. And what's so I'm trying to think right now. There's got to be a couple there's got to be something else out there. But either way, it seems you can't throw a stick and not hit a superhero film in Hollywood these days. This was an age when uh, practical effects or CGI, things hadn't quite caught up to what you were seeing in the panels of your your, your comic books. So superhero films weren't all that prevalent. Um, from what I understand, Raimi had tried to get the rights to adapt the 1940s serial The Shadow was unsuccessful, wanted to direct uh, 89 Batman, whiffed on that, went to Burton. Um, and so he said, OK, well, I'm going to make my own comic book character and I'm going to throw a lot of influences in the mix and I'm going to throw it on the screen. And so Universal gave him the dough to do that. Um Looking at this now, it feels to me like a director. This sort of feels like when I'm watching it, it sort of feels like what Walter Hill did with Streets of Fire, where it feels evident that it's it's a bit of a passion project for him. I don't know if you get that vibe. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that he this wears Raimi's heart on his sleeve um, with his influences. It definitely shines through. Um, it's a, I, I think this was a passion project. He wanted to do a comic book film and he was going to do one come hell or high water. And this is what he, you know, landed on. Yeah. And what's funny too, is looking at it, my first reaction, um, just looking at it or what I thought I was sort of recollected of it was superhero film. Mm -hmm. When you watch it back, it's, it's very much an amalgamation of, a few different things. It's like a universal monster film meets a superhero film with, you know, a few other, like some of the films that I got vibes of were Dr. Fibes, uh, Phantom of the Opera, Batman, you know, The Shadow. You're kind of getting a whole bunch of stuff thrown in the mix. So, but really, if you're going to distill it to sort of two things, it's a universal horror film meets a comic book film. Right. Which uh, I think probably both those things were big parts of Raimi's childhood. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you can see that without a doubt. Uh, his I, and I think that's one of the th things, too, that uh, 
this stuck out to me when it came out um, for the exact reason that it was that amalgamation because it took you know two of my favorite things which is horror and comics and and blended them together in a you know cohesive package that you know this film you know delivered everything that in 1990 you figure I was uh, 14 so <laughs> couldn't ask for more than this out of a film <laughs> for a 14 year old that was into comics and horror at the time no it hits all the sweet spots right so yep. We haven't talked about the cast for this one, but looking back to you, I'd forgotten about McDormand being in it. So we'll mm-hmm. just put down some of the big names. So Liam Neeson, of course, is the titular dark man. Francis McDormand plays his love interest. Uh, beyond them, Larry Drake uh, is the, the big, he's the heavy in the film, him and Colin Friels, who Friels to me has a familiar face. I can't recollect what else I've seen him in. I, I know I've seen him in a bunch of stuff over the years, but he has that uh, kind of corporate scumbag look yep kind of down pat but but drake and then neeson and uh mcdormand of course as well as a few other ted ramey shows up um jesse ferguson um right yep. at the beginning yep. um from boys in the hood and prince of darkness and oh he, yeah 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 that's yeah, right he, so as soon as he popped up i was like oh <laughs> I, can't. I was like that yeah. and even back then i kind of you know like rewatching i was like it i the prince of darkness you know came in and i was like oh okay and then boys in the hood because it's around the same time frame um i was like oh this there's this guy he's an asshole like you know like i you know i i i'm curious to see when they start with him you know it was like oh man this is going to be the heavy for the for the film and then larry drake comes in and says no i'll show you what a heavy is (laughs) like yeah uh, yeah so yeah, and and I Larry Drake I love because he's Doctor Giggles, which is one of my one of my guilty pleasures as a as a horror fan. Um, oh yeah, I, I love Doctor Giggles, uh, uh, you know, unashamedly so. And what's funny about Drake is Drake plays this, and I read this after the fact, and I think it's an interesting approach. Ramey thought that Drake he'd never watched L.A. Law, and anyone who's seen L.A. Law, <clears throat> and maybe some of you are far too young to know L.A. Law, long running you know, lawyer show on uh, on TV, on network television. Larry Drake's character, uh, and I don't know how the performance is aged, uh, played a gentleman with special needs. I think he was maybe a paralegal or something. Is that? I believe so, yeah. It's been, a, that's been, a, I haven't watched that since, <laughs> since the up 80s. Up on your LA lot. So but his yeah. character was, yeah, special needs, uh, I think a paralegal or something. So very, very different turn here. And Ramey had said that when he'd seen Drake, I don't know where he'd seen him, it reminded him a lot of an Edward G. Robinson with his face. Like he had sort of this, he could just project this this sort of silent menace. Yeah. He's got great eyes. I mean, that's that's the thing. Like he has this ability to emote with his eyes, even when he's not saying anything. And, you know, once we get into, you know, more spoilers about uh, the film, but the way that he can emote each character that he's playing with just his eyes, where you can realize what he's doing and, and who he is just by a look that says a lot for, you know, his ability to get that across because not everybody can do that. It's not an easy, easy thing to do. Um, and I guess Neeson, um, you know, does the same thing because he's behind a bunch of prosthetics um, in the film he can get a lot across with just his eyes and 
that's not something every actor can, you know, really has a as a tight grasp on. And I think uh, Drake does it, you know, as as good as anybody. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting through line to look at a few things. So Drake does it with an economy and Drake has to do that thing that we see later on with John Woo's face off where the actor's playing another actor. Right. Mm -hmm. Like Drake. So Drake's character, Durant, is being impersonated by Neeson's character. So he's got to add kind of some subtle ticks and and unfamiliarity uh, in the role. Right. So it's, it's a little bit of a different turn. Yeah, and he, I, so I ended up, um, I had the uh, the Shout Factory uh, Collector's Edition, and I originally had it on the the, the Dark Man trilogy because they actually made three of these uh, DVD release from like I don't know, it was the mid two thousands. But then um, I picked up the Shout Factory uh, Collector's Edition, and there's an interview with uh, Larry Drake before he passed because he passed in 2016, I think. Um, so he was talking about how he got cast for the role with Raimi and what sold him Raimi on the thing was he gave him the, the scene to do in the turnstile or the, uh, so he tells him, okay, here's the scene and I, and I want you to, you know, play it. And, you know, he's being completely honest in the interview where he goes, I can't remember exactly what I did, uh, that differentiated between one character and the other. But I did it well enough that that sold Raimi on it, and that's how I landed the role. You know, so I, hearing that, I have to think it has to a lot to do with the looks and just the slight mannerism changes that you know he injected into each version of the character. And it, it's it's got to be interesting, like you said, you're playing someone else that's playing someone else. So yeah. it's quite the rabbit hole to go down to say, okay. I'm not me. I'm someone else. And then that someone else is also someone else. And is trying to impersonate that actor. That's also that. playing me back. So that's like a snake eating its own tail going back around. Yeah. It's a lot to internalize for a performance in a in a B movie. Oh, it, it totally is. But then you look at it. So there's him. And then there's McDormand. And McDormand's given a little bit of a thankless role, but she's mm-hmm. an all-time actress. Yeah. And I think she does a really good job fleshing it out. And it's funny because a lot of her acting is with her eyes. Yes. It's just a lot of acting and, and elicits a lot of sympathy and tragedy with her eyes. A lot of reaction to, to what's going on with yep. that's coming at her, the emotion she's feeling, what she's seeing. I think she's got some of the best, I think, reactions to to a surprise. Um, whether it's the explosion or like the reveal of, uh, you know, Westlake when the the mask comes off and she sees him for the first time type thing like that. that her reactions are right. What she can do with her with her eyes, too, is, yeah, she's I think they do a master class in eye acting throughout the, you know, with all these a- actors. If you're <laughs> if you think about it, they're all they all do really well with their with their reacting, not quote unquote acting. Well, and again, so then the third part in this trifecta is Neeson. Yeah, he was in the makeup chair or he, his his working day. They were 18 hour days. Mm-hmm. So he probably spent, you know, seven, six, you know, I don't know, six, seven, eight hours in the chair getting the makeup done. And he has to be able to emote and bring a certain humanity and, and tr- sort of tragic humanity 
uh, and different things to different segments of the film because the character goes through a character arc, right? So I know from what I'd read, he really focused on wanting to uh, to convey things that, that weren't just going to be buried beneath all the latex, right? Which is a catch-22 because you want to be able to have enough makeup that it looks horrific and, and the tragic side of the physical tragedies um, communicated and illustrated us as the viewer, but it's not so much that, that any emoting is buried. And so Neeson does a really good job of bringing that, uh, giving it a heartbeat. Yeah, and and you figure this is, you know, uh, early 90s, late 80s, uh, early 90s effects work. Uh, it's not, um, granted, they're using silicone with a, you know, similar to what they use now, but it's much lighter weight now. Um, application process is insanely faster now than it was uh, back then. Um, and also the ability to remove it and put it on uh, was much more difficult back then than it is now so even if it is time consuming to apply it's still easier to remove and and you know put on and remove um so you're you're not going through as much torture but um you know you had i think the effects guys tony gardner um and he uh he had an interview on the on the uh blu-ray as well that said that he was kind of an unproven commodity at the time uh they were like hey can you do it and he said sure Sure, I can do it, um, even knowing that he hadn't done anything quite like that, because I think originally Bruce Campbell was supposed to be cast as Darkman, um, being a Raimi, um, you know, uh, regular collaborator on pretty much everything that Raimi's uh, done. And he initially pitched the role for uh, Campbell. So when Gardner did the makeup, he did the makeup based on Campbell's uh, face, which, you know, he's got that chin and it's a little more angular. It's not as full as uh, Liam Neeson's got more of a uh, square, you know, Irish jaw. And um, so he goes, yeah, yeah, I did all this makeup. And then I had to redo everything to try to fit Neeson's profile because I went off of Campbell's. And he goes, this was after I did all the work and they hired me. And then I had to redo everything. So, um, yeah, it's with Neeson, uh, you know, from what I understand, he, you know, has a love for the character. Like he enjoyed doing it. It's a tragic, you know, figure. Um, and he had a lot. It's a had a lot to do to try to get empathy for a character through all that. And I think he did a, a, a good job with. You're covered up with not just prosthetics, but bandages. You're wearing a huge cloak. You got a hat on. All they can see is your eye. <laughs> that's that's a tough that, that, that's a tough gig, you know. And especially as a young actor, you know, like I, I gotta do what? <laughs> it was his fur. It was Neeson's first sort of action leading turn, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's no small feat. And yeah, you mentioned it. Gardner's work is fantastic. Gardner's a name that isn't as well known as as some of the other names in his field. You know, your Winston's, your Botines, um, <clears throat> your Rick Baker's. But he has quite a resume. Like if you look at his work, um, he did Hocus Pocus. He started working in, you know, the mid 80s with Dan O'Bannon on Return of the Living Dead. He did Thriller. Um mm-hmm. You know, he's done a ton of stuff. 
right? Yeah, I think so Adam's still- Family, Smoking Aces. He actually um, he designed the Daft Punk uh, helmets. Which, yeah, a man after my own heart because yeah. I, yeah, I adore Daft Punk. So, yeah, very, very cool. Um, so his effects are great, and a lot of the, and not just the effects in this, but there's a lot of really great practical stunt work in this one too. Like there's a lot of explosions. It's a really wild flame stunt where like uh, a stunt man's on fire, flying through the air. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Super mm-hmm. crazy. And, you know, helicopter uh, stunts, uh, helicopters. Like, oh, yeah. Which is all practical. Like they were flying over downtown L.A. Like that. That's not up. Oh, there it goes. Now, <laughs> Sadie was barking with you. I got Freya barking over here, too. So she wants yep. to have a few cents. Um, so, yeah, they're flying over downtown L.A. with guys hanging from uh, helicopters. And, and Neeson was actually in the helicopter. So was Drake. Um Larry Drake was uh, had never been up in a helicopter before. And Ramey, I guess, you know, because he's like evidently a little kid on on set um, was like, oh, if you've never been up in a helicopter. Oh, I'm going to take you up there. Check this out. And then Larry Drake was up there and realized, I guess, Ramey realized that he was OK with it, that it, he didn't have an issue with motion sickness or whatever. So he kept telling him, all right, we're going to go up. We're going to go up. <laughs> it's like, awesome. yeah. So um, but it's real. Act- so it's got the actual actors up. In, I mean, nowadays, I don't even know what that would be for insurance reasons, if they would even do it like this anymore. But, you know, you actually had your actors up in the air in in helicopters. I mean, they're harnessed in and everything. But, you know, they're they're going up off the ground in, in live helicopters doing, you know, this stuff. So, you know, kudos to them for <laughs> for getting it done and for them to shoot it that way, because I don't think, you know, we talked about the. Uh, makeup being different now where I think a lot of this would probably be more CG oriented, unfortunately nowadays. Um, but practical effects too, with the stunts, um, I, I don't see a lot of it being done the way that they did it because you're right. There was, I mean, the opening scene alone is, is crazy. Like it's, oh, man. before we even get the credits, we get, a, we get a, an action scene of, you know, like cars flying out of crates and like, you know, which I'm going, or were they shipping them overseas or, you know, were they like, what, what, and how did they get the signal to fly out of the crates at that time? Like my, I started doing logistics with it. Like, oh, what was the go sign? It's a very <laughs> propulsive opening. And that's one of the things like the film really feels like, um, Ramey really tried to have a propulsive, he's an energetic filmmaker by nature, but it just feels very propulsive. It feels like a lot of the way it's shot is like, um, the shot composition feels like storyboard or like, like panels in a comic book. Mm-hmm. Um, the way the set design, a lot of the energy, some of the cast are really over the top. Like when we see, um, right at the beginning, like you were talking about, it's uh, it's great the showdown there's guns there's cars flying around um and and jesse ferguson you know he's very over the top and it's uh yeah it's an awesome trench coat that camel three-quarter trench oh yeah it's on point it's on point you know what's funny there's so many people crammed into this one just in like little extra perform extra performances like john landis shows up Mm -hmm. um Neil McDonough shows up, William Lustig shows up, Scott Spiegel shows up, Campbell, of course, Jenny Agutter, Ethan and Joel Cohen. It's crazy the amount of people that have popped up in sort of a blink and you'll miss it uh, kind of roles here. Yeah. And 
and it just you know and i think that it just that adds to almost like a timeless feel for me because it i'm well i don't want to say timeless but it should be a it takes me back to that time where you had these actors where you know what they are now or these, you know, individuals that you know what they are now to film and then to see them there. And like, you know, it must have known they were just there to have a, a blast. Like Ramey probably just called them up, and said, hey, you want to come hang out on set? And they were all like, yep, let's do it. You know, and for me, it, you know, it makes me feel like a young movie watcher when I watch a film like this. Like it still hit me almost the same way. Um you know, not to get too far ahead of how I feel about it. But yeah, it, it watching it back, it made me, you know, I felt like, oh, man, this it almost felt I guess in a way it felt fresh, even though I had seen it multiple times watching it again, because it had been a number of years, probably since the, you know, 2010, since I watched it in full um, to go back and be like, man, this still f- has a fresh feel to it. Oh, yeah. You got the same thing or, you know. In some ways, yes. In some ways, absolutely, I did. And like I said, I think it's like one of those things where it's funny. I, I was watching it, and some of the camera work feels a little dated, um, but by and large, everything uh, is um, uh, is you know pretty well done. And it's funny though because there's times in the film where it's Raimi, but it feels like uh, like Brian De Palma doing Hitchcock doing a superhero film. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. It's like this like 40s kind of, I don't know, I don't know how to articulate it, but it's uh, it's pretty. I think that's the spirit um, angle that, that, so originally, like you said, he wanted to do spirit. He wanted to do Batman, got turned down for both of them, um, landed on this. And then, but those influences. So right from the door, I got the, the love letter, you know, to Universal Monster Films. I mean, it being opening with the universal logo it's a 75th anniversary like montage you had the old black and white universal so that kind of put me in the mood of like oh it's in you know universal film you've got the opening you know uh credits with the mist kind of look like an older you know monster film or you know sci-fi film from back in the day um and it just had the music too i don't want to you know undersell that either because elfman elfman yeah He's coming right off of what Batman 89 at this point. I think this was his next project right after that. So he's riding high like you're not getting bigger than he is right there at that point. So he's then he comes in to do this. And I mean, Elfman, I you know that he needs no introduction would all the flowers to him because, you know, any you put him on a superhero movie, he's giving you the goods. Oh, there's no, sure. <laughs> there's no you know, bad score that I've heard yet come out of him where I'm like, ah, that seems out of place. Um, every, you know, all of his scores have this ethereal feel to him at points where it's just kind of, you know, the moods that it sets with the notes that he picks is just, it's, you know, it's brilliance. It's, is the reason he is who he is and why he works on the films he does. Oh, for sure. You know, another film I always lumped in with this one and I still feel this way is, is RoboCop. Okay. Now, part of that, uh, they're very different in terms of spirit because RoboCop is very much, it's Verhoeven. So you're getting sort of a, it's almost played like satire, but just this, I don't know if it's my, you know, nine and 10 and 11 year old self kind of lumping it all together, but sort of the this tragic hero, this tragic disfigured hero getting revenge. Yeah. So you, I think 
the and also yeah it's it's it goes back to the to the monster aspect of it of you have uh, robocop is more of a frankenstein's monster um where he's put together and then with uh dark man it's more of you've got dr frankenstein with you know westlake being more of a dr frankenstein to begin with or shades of invisible man especially with the bandages and everything once he gets to that point but at the the beginning you know he's trying to find this you know cure and i mean that's that evokes every you know well-intentioned mad scientist in science fiction history you've got a guy who's trying to find a cure with this skin this synthetic skin that he can't figure crack the code and it drives him to the you know the point to the brink you can see it's like why can't i get it to work so he may have gone down a an interesting path had this stuff never happened to him anyway because he had that i think that innate um intensity as a you know in him anyway it wasn't just the all the uh injuries and everything that he had that kind of unleashed this super version of that but you can see it even at the beginning where when he's getting frustrated because he can't make the skin go past 99 minutes he has that intensity so he has that a little bit of darkness pun intended um in him that kind of shines through a little bit and you see it's like oh okay there's something to him and again that's that's something that neeson's doing very subtly but it comes through um at least it did for me Oh, yeah. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. And, and it's funny because you like this character goes through that arc and it's um, it's almost like it's multiple. Like you get the Claude Rains, mm-hmm. oh, man, but where he's kind of losing his mind a little bit and he's he's paying a price. The beginning, like you said, is Dr. Frankenstein and kudos to the production design because that lab really looks randy sir was the, the production designer mm-hmm. it really looks like um like dr frankenstein's lab like that's it's obvious that's what they're going for and it looks oh, right yeah. and yeah. i think that was an that's an abandoned factory that doesn't exist a, anymore but they they it was an actual location that they built inside of so that made it that much more believable because it was a practical building it wasn't just a set from scratch that yep. they d- designed in and that's a hallmark of a lot of 80s movies i think coming out of the the you know when you're in the 80s there's a lot of dilapidated buildings you know you have you know a lot of factories that went out of you know business in in the the 70s and you had you know mills closing down like the steel mills and things like that so you had a lot of abandoned properties um that were just floating out there (laughs) and when they utilize those like they did in this it just adds a certain level of authenticity that just building a set i don't think you can get um and you can get a lot of things maybe that you didn't plan for you know but then when you get on location you're like we can do this we can do that look at this over here like this this looks cool over here so yeah it's definitely the set design was and i think it's everything kind of fired on all cylinders with it like this so you've got oh there goes there goes fray so and some more two cents in there yeah uh, gotta love it but yeah i think uh all of them were uh you know everything's kind of fire, firing on all cylinders between set design you've got your effects you've got your score your actors your director it's like 
a lot of things gelled on this where, you know, it, it makes it a really, you know, oh, excuse me for one second. Let me go take care of her for two seconds. I'm going to ramble for a minute till you come back. You just butt in when you come back. I'm going to keep All talking. Right, sounds good. Thank you, sir. So, yeah, one of the things just to, to piggyback on that that I find is I've been forthright over the years of, of saying I don't love Sam Raimi. I admire Sam Raimi. I respect what he's he's brought to film and to horror, to genre film. Um, but man, even when I was watching this, some of it might have left me a little cold until I kind of stepped back and I, and I thought about it and I looked at all the different layers, like Brian was just saying, the <clears throat> the score, the practical effects, the camera work, the acting, production design, um, stunts. I don't know if I just said that, but when you get all those ingredients and nothing really whiffs in that regard right so even down to kind of some of the fun playful character stuff um like drake's character having the finger cigars which you know if you've seen it you know what those are if not you're in for a treat um it's kind of just kind of a signature uh thing that he does that you'll remember the first time you've seen the film uh, it's also how he counts yeah that's right <laughs> that's right it's how he and, counts his points which i think is a is a Probably one of my favorite um, things about the opening is what is the when he, you know, has a line of like, yep, and I've got seven more points to make. Yeah, and you just yeah, scene. it's just a perfect delivery. Perfect. You know, like just shows you who the character is right off the bat. Like, all right, this guy, he means business and he's sadistic and he does not give, you know, a crap about anything. Like he's going to do what he's going to do and nobody's going to stop him. Precisely. It's it's a great turn by Drake for sure. I feel like if I'm being honest and I'm going to look at a few things critically, I do feel that you can cut the Colin Friel's character, like the Strack character out. Like to me, I would have been fine to have more Drake because Friel's is fine, but I don't feel like he brings anything that if you take him out, you're, there's a big void in the film. So, but that's just me. Um, yeah, I could see that though. No, I, I, I see your point because he, it, he does feel a little shoehorned in. Where I'm not exactly sure the purpose, other than a conflicting love interest that they kind of half-heartedly thrown in there. Which, and I wonder if that was part of the rewrites that they went through, like to add that type of character in, because yeah, he seems a little underdeveloped. Which, to be honest, I think that does the McDormand character a great disservice, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't, I, I don't think there needs to be this, this conflicting thing. We, we want to strengthen uh, this assertion that, you know, Westlake is just his undying love for McDormand and not have him <laughs> have feelings of physical inadequacy um, because of some, you know, corporate dickhead. You know, I don't know. It just his stuff, you know, Drake strong feels is good in the role, but I just feel like it feels like a shoehorn role. And like you said, there was a lot of um, uh, re reshoots and, and editing stuff and just a lot of uh, a lot of meddling and a lot of things kind of behind the scenes where it didn't screen well. And they started cutting it and the, the original cuts over two hours. And let me ask you, does this Blu-ray that you have, is it like the 90 you know, 90 something minute cut, or is it like a two hour plus cut or it is, let me check to see. Cause I don't want, it is 96 minutes. So that's the one I watched, but curiously, 
the director's cut was over two hours. So I'll say this. I like Raimi. I like the film. I feel like the 96 minute runtime doesn't sag, doesn't drag. It feels like the appropriate amount of time for me for this film. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I, I think that it's almost like the, the perfect runtime for it because it gets done what it needs to get done. You yeah. don't you it it moves at a nice pace from one you know scene to another the transitions are good there's not there's there's not a lot of fat on it at all i mean like you said the the you could probably take the uh the strat character out if you really you know wanted to trim it down even more um but then again you'd have to add something more in with the uh, like the julie character and 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 peyton and maybe branch that out a little bit or or add more drake like you said um but that would be the only thing other than that i mean there's as that there's not a lot of fat on the film at all and it moves at a nice pace it's it's uh delivery to where it's easy to understand what's going on there's not a lot of like well wait a second i gotta play catch up mentally because i don't understand what's going on here it's it's kind of a, a very easy film to follow but it doesn't seem like a dumb film if that makes sense like sometimes it's kind of like where if a film is too easy and there's no, you know, it, it kind of seems like you're like, eh, I'm not really getting, you know, getting into this because it's just kind of too bland. It's never milk toast. There's always something interesting going on, whether and I think that has to do with, you know, like we said before, you've got if it's an interesting set or if it's a interesting stunt or if there's interesting effects or good, you know, great acting going on by, you know, Neeson or McDormand or or Drake there's always something that pulls you into, you know, a part of it. So if it, even if one would be lacking, like say maybe the distraction of the blue screen, when you're in the office scene, um, when Drake first comes in, um, you know, and they're, they're doing their talk, they're looking at the high rise, um, that he showed Julie, uh, Julie that they're building. Well, the blue screen doesn't look that great, but you've got Drake in the scene or you got McDormand in the scene. That's, pulling you away from that so it's not as distracting so yeah i think that's it there's not a lot of stuff i would you know probably change about it um and i wish i think if i'm reflecting on a newer raimi film like dr strange and the multiverse of madness i wish he brought more of what he brought to dark man to that film (laughs) you know i think it would have been better for it no i agree I agree. It's, um, yeah, I'm just thinking here, you know, another couple of things I wanted to mention before I forget. Uh, did you get, you know, the, the side, not the side, the circus or the carnival scene? Yeah. Does that, did you get like a creep show vibe when he starts freaking out? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I was waiting for <laughs> for the thing to pop out of the crate. Yeah. Um, and the, the lizard guy that's in that scene is actually Tony Gardner. It's a cameo by Tony Gardner. Oh, very cool. Very so that's that's his little moment in the uh, in the sun. But um, yeah, that I definitely got a, a creep show vibe for that. And I think the his rage outs or freakouts that he has are one of the the strongest things in the film to get you in. Like it really makes you feel what the character is going through. Like. Sometimes in films, if a character's having a mental break, it's it's hard to relay that to the audience. 
And you can either undersell it or oversell it. And this is kind of over the top, but it sells it like just perfectly where um, it makes its point, but it doesn't like it doesn't go. And this goes pretty loud, but it doesn't go too loud. Like you just feel like, OK, you know, he, he's freaking out. And as somebody who, you know, had, you know, has anxiety and, and you know, has dealt with it like, yeah, there's times where you're mentally like you're like, man, I'm going to crack. And like to see that put out on screen where like with the it's literal cracks it can seem like you're hitting somebody over the head but like nope that kind of just struck the right vibe to where that's some of the best parts of the film to see his his mental breakdown of how he's going um through take everything the fucking elephant yeah take the fucking elephant so <laughs> <laughs> like, that's a great thing cuz you know you know I think we've all been there in our lives where it's just kind of like you get to that point and you, it, you almost like, I don't know if that's just a universal voice of, of the octave that you go to, but I, I know I've probably used that in my life plenty of times where I'm like, you know, when you get mad, you drop down to that like guttural thing and you're like, freaking thing. So yeah. Yeah. It's true. Um, what else do we got? Do you know that the big the big set piece? There's a lot of cool set pieces in this from an action perspective, but the set piece um, on the, the the high rise, right? Yes. Um, you know what that really reminded me of, and I'm trying to think of the name of the film. What was the Spider-Man film with all the Spider-Men in it? No Way Home. Was that what it was? No. Yes. Was yeah. No Way Home? Yep. Spider-Man No Way Home. So what was cool is that that to me felt like I don't know maybe it's just me reaching but that 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 finale with that skyscraper half finished that looked so much like that that set piece at the back end of the film with Holland Maguire and Garfield. Yeah, I think and it's also evocative of the Spider-Man 3 because with uh Venom that Raimi did like yeah. it's, I think he because the it's same thing they're in the you know the construction building because he's going against Sandman and that as as well and it's um and Venom and they uh they're kind of in a half built high rise um where there's girders and beams and everything um around so yeah definitely <laughs> definitely made me um you know feel the same thing and there was I also had a come a the one scene too, where he's walking down, and he goes, "Yeah, it's you know 650 feet above the ground," and they pan down to the bottom to show you the thing sticking up, the um, rebar. Oh man, and you know, you know that's gonna pay off. Yeah, so I'm like, okay, you know, and that scene though, the way that he delivered that line, and I don't know why I, that, because I didn't go back and watch it to see if it's exactly the same. The scene in Total Recall where they're talking about how old the um the machines are on mars when they're going through to they're going and they're they're seeing that they have these um sedentary machines that have been turned off and and he says you know how long has it been here he's like you know you know a million two million years or whatever the the line was and the way that it echoes it almost sounds like the exact same type of delivery and i don't know why that evoked the same feeling but it's something with that shot i'm curious to see if the same I don't know if Bill Pope worked on that because he was the DP for uh, for this. But I I don't know if he did Total Recall, but I'd be surprised if someone didn't. There wasn't some type of crossover because the the way it was delivered in the scene seemed exactly the same. Like the line delivery, the way they panned down, it just seemed like that, 
you know, it made me think of that. So. No, I agree. I can't, I can't place that. I mean, I know the, the part you're talking about, but I, I don't know if that was a, an intentional thing with Pope's involvement or, or what, but yeah, no, that's, it's yeah, for sure. Uh, what else? So yeah, the freeway, the helicopter stuff, it's almost like T2. It's pretty, pretty good set PC showcase stuff mm-hmm. to show that, uh, Raimi can, you know, can, can play in a big sandbox. Um, another T2, uh, connection, that at least that I saw when I was watching this. So this came out in 1990. T2 came out in 1992. And do you remember the the original um, teaser trailer for T2? Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe to see it. So if you go back and watch that, it's basically they're showing you the assembly lines of the the T800s, and it's the exoskeleton exoskeletons that are there, and then they have these two you know sides that come together. And when it releases, it shows you Arnold, and he comes out as the the T-800 and his eye glows red. That was the teaser trailer for T-2. So I'm looking back, I'm watching Darkman now, and I'm going, so the scene where, you know, he makes the hand for the first time and the two parts go together, it comes apart, and the hand's sitting there. Like, it's, they had to pull inspiration, I mean, you know, for that trailer, like, that. I don't know if the same people worked on it again. There's, you know, who knows in, in Hollywood back then I didn't do, didn't do my research, but um, it seemed to me like that, that was a, you know, there's a lot of stuff that was done in this that was then kind of ported over and, and utilized, you know, in T2 and other, you know, other films of the like, because, and this was kind of the, I didn't realize that time-wise this may have been one of the first films to do that. Like with the, the, um, you know, creating the hand and having it, you know, where they make the face out of the, you know, the machine and everything. And I'm like, this is pretty early on. And like that stuff, as early as it was in the 90s and the CGI that they used, which was rudimentary by today's standards. But I think think still holds up because it was done well enough and it wasn't overused. It was done for a very short period of time. And, you know, in the film, a few seconds here, a few seconds there, you get the point across and then they go to the practical effect. And it just, I think it holds up. It, it really does, you know. No. And you're right; it absolutely does. And and sometimes that's the thing, right? Sometimes if you're you're prudent about it, and you're you you know, well, it's no different than the shark in Jaws. You, too much shark would have sunk. No pun intended. Would have really sunk the the mythology around that film, right? You you got to, you know, timing's everything. Right. You, you get just enough on there and and you're good to go. Right. So, yeah, lesson uh, learned. Don't show too much of the shark or too much of the monster. And, yeah. you know, it's you're better for it. Just infer because what you're what the fans are going to think up and the audience is going to think up is going to fill in the blanks and be better than you just showing them over and over and over again. The same thing. I think we've kind of we've seen that in, in cinema enough times where if you do show it over and over again, um it's just kind of becomes, you know, bland, par for the course. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, I don't have a whole lot more to add. Just a couple pieces of trivia. One that I found interesting was Bill Paxton was going to audition for the role of Peyton Westlake. Mm-hmm. He was friends with Neeson. He told Neeson about it. Neeson auditioned, got the role. And Peyton, uh, Paxton was apparently perturbed and didn't talk to 
Neeson for a bit. I'll say this. I like Neeson, and Neeson does a very admirable job, but I think I would rather see Paxton in that role. Not to take anything away from Neeson does, because to do 18-hour days and the commitment he made, you know, he deserves all the love and adoration he gets for it. But um, Paxton, I think, could have taken it. I don't know. I mean, I guess it's hard to say, right? But I've been curious to see, like, a, a Marvel what if with Paxton in that role. Yeah. Well, if you want, I, I think if you want to know what he would kind of look like, uh, just watch Near Dark. Well, there's not. <laughs> when, yeah. he gets, when he gets burnt in Near Dark. Yep. Pretty much looks like Dark Man. <laughs> oh, you're right. And on, and on the flip side, romantic interest side, Julia Roberts was cast as the Julie Hastings character, got Pretty Woman, and said, later, Gators, I'm going to do Pretty Woman. And so they quickly recast it with McDormand. So McDormand, I think, with all due respect to Roberts, who's fine as, uh, you know, in certain material, she's, mm-hmm. she's beautiful and uh, charming, but McDormand, I think, is a is a an actress with more range. So, yeah, two uh, two ways this could have went very differently from a casting perspective. Yeah, and and I so in that respect too. Originally, they were going to have you know, uh, Ramy was looking to put Campbell in this as a as a star vehicle for him. What do you think in regards to that? Do you think he would have been able to pull it off coming off of? What Evil Dead Two at this point? I don't think he did anything else, and they didn't do Army of Darkness. I think until '93, or it came out in '93. So yeah, he'd probably been coming off Evil Dead Two. So do I think he could have pulled? Yeah. Do you think? Do you think he uh, between him and Neeson, you know, or do you think he would have brought something different to the character, like you know, that would have been something better than what we got? That's a good question. And I don't know. I don't know if that's because I prefer Paxton as a an actor, because just because of one's preference for an actor doesn't mean they would do a better job. Yeah, I guess looking at it, Neeson does. And I, I kept reading about Raimi thinking of Neeson like a Gary Cooper type and kind of a classic stoic um, uh, style actor. And, and Neeson does a great job in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, man. That's a hard one to say. I guess. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. I'll, I'll, I'm willing to go out on the vine and try Paxton in that role because if if it's a this or that, I'm, I'm going to take, with all due respect to Neeson, mm-hmm. I'm going to take Paxton, I think. All right. What about you? Um. Well, I so my like I said, I would throw a third one in there. I'd be interested to see what Campbell would have done with, with the role just oh, because yeah. of how well they did with, you know, he's – him and Ramey have a shorthand, oh, you know? So. Yeah. And I, I think that potentially you would have gotten a little more comedic stuff thrown in where That's I think this, the only thing that they threw in that was super comedic. Well, the two that uh, was his one freak out with the cat where he's dancing around like a clown. Oh, that's um, a really hammy scene, <laughs> but it, yeah, it's, so it's super hammy, and then but there's also a part of me that looks back and goes, this is a very broken man that's losing his mind in front of me. And, you know. I don't know if it's sad or hammy, you know what I mean? Like it it, it really skirts that line where it's like, is he completely coming undone to the point where, you know, and you see you see it right in front of you or is this just like overacting? So no, I'm not sure, you know, if. 
kind of can be seen both ways. But yeah, he definitely it was definitely o- over the top in either respect. Like he's either really losing his mind or he's really hamming it up. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then like- um, the scene on top of the truck where he runs like a Looney Tunes. I don't know why that was thrown in there because oh. it kind of comes out of nowhere. Where, you know, he's on the he's on the, the hook with the helicopter and the trucks are coming at him and instead of just dodging him later like that one scene where he like runs really fast like a you know, cartoon character and they almost play the cartoon character thing was almost as something out of the three stooges which i know Raimi's a big fan of yeah. um that just felt so that fell out out of place so like if that's a if i guess if i'm looking at maybe things that could have been done different or could have been edited out like we said before or something that you could probably trim some fat off of that's definitely. I don't. I don't know who's. I, I'm guaranteeing you. Uh, I probably you know would bet that it's Ramey. Yeah. That, that wanted to put that in there. No, that's fair. You know, and uh, something else that didn't age well, I think, is the the kung fu sidekick lab assistant. Yep. That just he's Asian, so we must know kung fu. Yeah. I was like, that's interesting, and yeah. with. Um, Larry Drake hasn't had the the best track record with not being racist towards Asians in movies because um, he's like get me the Asians fingers and then he says um, in Karate Kid he's the uh, the racist a hole that puts his beer bottles on Mr Miyagi's car. Oh yeah 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 yeah. <laughs> and he goes hey look the kid's got his own nip and I went oh that that that's another scene that has not aged as well and you know. He calls him Mr. Moto. I was like, oh man. So yeah, he's Larry Drake. You know, didn't have the greatest uh, track record for uh, <laughs> not being racist in, a, in against Asians in film. No, no, no. Uh, I was trying to think if there was something else too that I was when you were talking that I wanted to tie around to. Um, what is it? Oh, the um, the montages in here because there's a lot. I think they're it's actually credited and I didn't, man, I don't think I, if I wrote it down or not, um, it's actually, a, it was credited to a different person who did the, um, he did the credits and he did the, uh, the montages, but the montages are another thing that made it seem more like an older, um, universal film to where um, even when he's going through and he's making the skin and you see the the beakers kind of floating through the air and as time's, you know, passing as he's waiting. Um, that's just something that I, you know, that's in my wheelhouse. So I was kind of like, I'm seeing that and it's making me smile as a as a viewer because I'm like, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's old school, you know, tricks that are getting put in there. So, um, and I guess that's another reason why I said it kind of had before where I said it kind of had a timeless feel to it. Because yep. it doesn't necessarily just feel of the time of the night, you know, the 90s or whatever. It has that kind of timeless feel to it where it could be happening now. It could be happening, you know, 40 years ago. It whatever. It doesn't you know, it didn't really matter. Um, and so watching it now, it still felt kind of present. I didn't feel like I was watching necessarily a dated film, um, except for some of the effects and, and things. And nobody's walking around with cell phones all the time. No, you're right, though. You're right. It's, it does have a timeless feel as a result, uh, save for those few effects, for sure. Yep. Um, so, anything else? Um, I do would like to say that the, you know, I did mention the 90s camel trench coat on uh, Eddie Black. I think all the henchmen 
Um, the the trench coats in this film, um, they stand um, shoulder to shoulder with Van Damme's trench in oh, yeah. Hard Target any day of the week. Oh yeah, like, I, I was you know I'm like there, <laughs> and I mean as someone who you know came up through the '90s like like yourself, like yeah, I, I may may have owned uh, a couple of them um, throughout my t- time in the '90s. Um, I know leather trenches were big in Jersey. I don't know how they were in uh, they were big <laughs> in Toronto. Yeah, they were big, man. They were big for sure. Wilson's leather, um, you know, I don't know. That's what we had. That was the the mall store down here. Um, but that was a big thing. We all, there, everybody had Wilson leather. It was either you had your three quarter, you know, or you had your trench, or you had you know your your bomber jacket, whatever. It's like it had to be you know a, a black leather jacket, and they were everywhere. Oh man, they definitely <laughs> were. Yep. Yeah, they were, and yeah, bomb, yeah, bombers, three quarters, the yeah, the dusters, man, a lot of people. Mhm. I thought it was like a Highlander audition when they came out. I was like, what the heck is going on? Everybody's got trench coats on, and yeah. <laughs> the one, and of course, the one henchman with the with the false gun leg. I don't know how, like we, <laughs> we didn't I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that, but yeah. probably one of the the all time like greatest, you know, <laughs> like uses of a fake leg. Yeah, very true. And that comes early on. Yeah, that's like right out the gate. And that's why at that opening and, that, you know, we, we said it before, but I think that that is so strong and set the tone so well where it was like when I was 14 and even now rewatching it, it grips you right away. You're like, all right, man, I'm, I'm along for the ride. You got you got me. I'm buckled up. I'm ready to go. It's a it's a really strong statement of intent. Like this is what you're going to get. Yep. This is what you're going to do. So buckle up. Yep. Did you ever see, and I've been sort of a longtime vocal advocate for it. Have you ever seen, uh, I'm sure you have, being a big comic book guy, uh, Billy Zane's Phantom? Yes. I love that film. Yeah. I, I I was disappointed, you know, back in the day when, you know, it didn't do well because I thought it was a strong film. And it just, I think he unfairly got like maligned after that role. It kind of like sunk him for a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's a great film. And I mean, that it's, this feels of the same air where it could be like a forties, fifties adventure film. The same thing with that. I mean, obviously that was, you know, harkening back to the original source material that was, you know, set in that time frame. But, um, yeah, that's a, it's a great film. And I mean, I, it probably should have made him a star, you know, way bigger star. He should have been a star. He great looking guy, tons of charm. Lost his hair. Always played the heel in films, it seemed. Yeah. It was uh, his charisma. I mean, well, yeah, and, and you know, he's got in um, Demon Knight, he plays one of the best heel turns, you know, yeah. there is. I mean, he's yeah. just great in that. He is great. But The Phantom, for those that haven't seen it, check it out. It's it's so fun. It's It's got that old-timey kind of adventure but it's fun. It knows what it is. The cast is good. You know, Billy Zane, Treat Williams, rest in peace. Christy Swanson, you know, despite her her political beliefs. Uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones, James Remar. It's uh, it's really fun. Really, really fun. Well, that was Christy Swanson back in her Buffy days. So that was yeah, that was prime yeah. Smith Egger, prime Christy. Right. So yeah. she kind of took a turn. So yeah, Swanson TV dinner. I would have liked to have. Uh, you and me both, buddy. You and me both. <laughs> Amen to that. Hungry man. <laughs> um, oh, what was I going to? Oh, I wanted to ask you because I've never seen them. 
And I saw that my guy, Arnold Vosloo, was the titular dark man in the second and third ones. How how are the second and third in the series? So uh, the second one was, is the stronger of the two. The third one is kind of, you know, that that's just that was a cash in. And, uh, but the second one, like they actually, you know, did a good job. And for if you watch this film and you're a fan of Larry Drake, um, the second one's called The Return of Durant. Yes. Um and so his character's kind of front and center and kind of does the turnaround where he comes back from the dead, um, like Westlake did in the first one. And it's so it's a lot more Larry Drake. Um, the so. As far as the dark man character, when you got Arnold Vosloo, he in his, you know, I've loved him since Hard Target when he. You know, oh, he's so good in that. Randall, Randall, Randall. <laughs> You wouldn't want to hurt my feelings, would you, Randall? Oh yeah, he's great. That's a good Boston uh, man. Sammy's got a got some competition for <laughs> for impersonations. That was good. Oh, uh, so and, and so since then, I've you know he's great. He was in you know obviously in the Mummy did did great then. So he does a a great turn as as Westlake. Um, you know, and the fact that you know Dark Man can look like anyone, it. it you know, it fits. It doesn't make it feel like it's such a, you know, a turn from, you know, Liam Neeson because enough time went by and he's also in, you know, rags and, and a and a coat throughout the, the film as well. So it, it's not Vusalu as Vusalu all the time. Um, you know, he's still got the, the makeup on and the makeup does improve a little bit because it was a few years later. So it's not as um stiff as the original makeup but yeah the film the second one i i would recommend um the box that i bought back in 08 or whatever has all three of them i watched them all originally when they came out on video um because you know i was a dark man fan so i was like hey they're coming out with more i think the second one might have been able to do a um theatrical even though they did it direct to video Mm -hmm. um but then the third one yeah that's definitely that's usa up all night you know fodder it's you know if you're a dark man fan after the 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 first one and you, you know this is you know in your wheelhouse and you're completist see it but if you don't it's not going to be the end of the world <laughs> okay nice but i still you know i might check out the second at least for sure yeah the second one because drake gets you know he gets more screen time and he gets more time to be this you know cool badass character um you know that's just you love to hate you know yeah very cool. All right. Um, I'll get into make or breaks, MVTs, and all that. Few different scenes. Gosh, this is a this is a tough one. I really love the revolving door scene. I think it's really fun, really playful. Ultimately, I'm going to settle on kind of the 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 testosterone of sort of out pre Cameroning Cameron with the helicopter down the freeway. I think that's a really fun scene and it, it just it's another kind of feather in in Raimi's cap. But I think this really is a I don't know if this was an intentional calling card, but it showed that he could get in a bigger sandbox and and really make something uh, pretty spectacular for the screen. Um, MVT, uh, yeah, I could go with a few different things, but I think by and large, I just want to go with all the people involved with the the practical work on the film, the stunt work, the the effects, you know, the, the 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 demolitions or 
um, all that stuff. You know, these people put in long, long days and um, I think it, it's really evident on the screen, you know, from the helicopters to all the explosions to the makeup to everything. It just it works wonderfully. Um, and my score for this one is uh, 7.25 out of 10. It's a really fun film. You know, it's uh, it as we talked about, it has a number of different influences, whereas it's hard on its sleeve. Um, and I think it's aged pretty well, uh, you know, by and large. And uh, it's it just goes to show what a fun, diverse filmmaker Raimi is. So I'll kick it over to you, my friend. All right. Um, so I was almost um, going to pick the uh, helicopter scene for MVT. Um, there's okay. there is a lot of stuff that you could pick out of this movie, um, especially with the action scenes. Uh I'm probably, even though it doesn't feature the titular character, I'm going to probably pick the opening just because it's such a strong opening. Like, and we've said it, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'll say it again. It does make such a strong statement um, that it just, you know, I, and it's fun. It's almost, I thought for a second, I was like, am I watching a John Woo film? Like what, what's going on? You know, because there's, there was so much happening um, just at that, that short, uh, you know, brief time span that like I was like, wow, this is economy filmmaking where you're putting your message out and it's before the credits. Oh, big you know? time. So, yeah, I'll give it uh, I'll, I'll give it that as um, the MVT. But like a, a close uh, a close second is definitely the um, the effects like the you know, the, the effects in the film can't be understated because, again, dealing with the time frame of when it was made. And how was it, you know, how you had to apply it. There wasn't CG. It's all practical. Um, you know, that's that's got to be a close second because it really does. You know, everything looks good. I don't think there was a there wasn't too many times throughout the film, even when the, the makeup's on full display, where it's distractingly you know, or a distraction taking you out of the character. No, like, you know that it's 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 a practical makeup. You know, um, it's not fooling you into thinking that it's it's super realistic. But again, I think that goes hand in hand with what type of film it is. It's not trying to be a realistic film. It's it's an over the top adventure, uh, you know, comic book film. So you give it that um, you give it that benefit of the doubt where it's not taking you out of the film. Um, So, yeah, that that would be. I think my MVT. I'm still though. I'm going with that first action scene because it just makes too much of a, too much of a mark on me, to go with anything else. Um, but I wish that you know, current, uh, comic book films could learn a lot from this movie. And it's funny saying that that Sam Raimi directed one of the current, you know, or you know, more current films, and it ended up being what it was. Um, because I think if he went back and watched this or talked to his younger self, I think he would probably have pared down that you know, his Dr. Strange film a little bit, but yeah. uh, they could learn a lot from this because it's, it's economy of intent. It's economy of movement and purpose. And it's, you know, doing what it needs to do, getting in, getting out and doing it, you know, well, and not overthinking it, not trying to make it too pretty or too perfect, um, but making it good, you know? And I think that gets lost in the shuffle nowadays with films. They're trying to make them too pretty. They're trying to make them too perfect. And they lose all the emotion that you get, the raw emotion that makes you feel something. 
Um, and, and this isn't, you know, the opposite of that. I feel a lot when I watch the movie, it makes me smile. So, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And what was your score? And my score is close to yours. I'm a 7.5 out of 10. I was going to go a little bit higher, but then I was like, you know what? Watching it back, like if it if the if, if the blue screen effects or the green screen effects were a little bit, you know, uh, better, and it didn't have the Looney Tune stuff in there, it probably would have been an eight out of ten. So it was right there. It was in, in between a seven point five and an eight for me. I agree, man. Like the, that that green screen or blue screen stuff did take me a little bit. That's the only stuff that feels really dated. Yep. Kind of like ooh. You know, the rest of it. And 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 that's one of the things that with Raimi that's always kind of bugged me. And again, it's it's mileage is going to vary depending on viewer, but kind of that wacky Looney Tune stuff. It's like, no, I, I'm good without that. But again, if, if it's a package deal, I'm willing to take the whole enchilada because there's a lot more in there I like than I don't like. And um, yeah, like you said, I think um, to and I think hopefully you're seeing this because there's been rumblings. A lot of lots been written lately about um the business of theater the theater experience and how people have gravitated towards what are seemingly sort of standalone films this summer versus you know the the third or fourth or the fifth film in a universe or a series so this while it did have a trilogy it it doesn't set out looking to keep all these balls in the air for a, a universe or a series it's 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 an independent standalone film that your enjoyment will not be um, diluted or or it's not going to be the film isn't uh, there's no penalty or, or downside to enjoying it as a standalone no not at all I mean and it was in, I don't believe it was intended even though the the ending is open-ended because um, we get the the cameo with Campbell you know because he's got to be in every one of Raimi's movies um, as you know the the face of Darkman going forward which you know, I would like kind of actually like to see him eventually. You know, that would have kind of been interesting. I don't know why they picked Vuslu over Campbell, but um, besides that, no, it doesn't hurt. It is um, from a time where you could make one movie and it just be that. And then if it did anything later on, it would have made a TV show. Um, but we can go down that rabbit hole, you know, later on because they did try one and it did not work out. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> had an unaired pilot, which I sent you that don't even watch it. It's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, you watch this by itself. Um, enjoy it. Grab some popcorn. Hop on the couch. You know, turn it on like it's 1990 and you just came home from Blockbuster. And I think it's you know, you'll enjoy the heck out of it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's cool, man. I want to thank you on behalf of Sammy and I for being here. I know he would have loved to have been on here and talked about this because he loves comic books, doesn't always love comic book films. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to see what he thinks. Um, we've got to get you back on during the Halloween season, considering you're such a big horror guy. Um, before we jump off, though, I know you have a few endeavors. Is there anything you want to you want to push on here? Maybe we can get a few people like lucky or anything or <laughs> um yeah sure if if you don't mind and you're giving me a platform by all uh, means i sure. will i will take it i'll shamelessly plug myself for two seconds yeah um man. so basically what i um what i do is uh my side hustle is i sell comics um i'm a big comic guy which is one of the reasons why you know this is one of my you know movies that i enjoy from the 90s um 
So I have a uh, an Instagram. It's a uh, Lucky Finds underscore Comics. That's L U C K K E Y F I N D S underscore Comics. Um, and basically, what I do is I just talk comics. Um, I sell comics, trade comics, buy comics. So if you have comics and you don't want them anymore, you can always hit me up. I'm buying collections. I'm selling collections. Um, it's something that I've kind of carried over from childhood. Um, my first job was at a comic shop. Um, it's something that I, you know, grew up with, like everybody else reading comics and, you know, and now on the back end of, you know, now I'm 47 and, you know, I'm like, you know what, I want to get back into, uh, you know, doing what I enjoyed doing back in the day, which is, you know, talk comics and, you know, get comics into people's hands that maybe they can't get a hold of some harder to find stuff. So, yeah, I figured I'd start an Instagram and go from there. And so far, things have been going good. Um, I do claim sales every uh, Thursday at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So basically what that means, I just pop on there. I'll post some books for sale. And if you want them, you claim them in the comments. So it's pretty straightforward. What's uh, what's what's been your best find so far? Like you've been like, whoa, uh, it's now. Well, okay, so the reason that I got in, that I kind of jump-started this, because this was actually going to be my retirement gig, um, back in February, I was able to purchase a collection of probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 books. Um, and inside of that, um, 20,000 books, I actually got a bunch of... Uh, so the reason it's lucky is because, you know, grail comics like the the holy grails that you look for are known as keys. So key issues. Um, so the the key issues that I found, which were a bunch of them, um, the two that meant probably the most right out the gate was one. I got the first appearance of John Constantine in mm-hmm. Swamp Thing number 37 because um, I love Swamp Thing and I was you know big fan of John Constantine. Um, and then the other one was um, anyone who collected comics in the 90s or knows anything about comics and, and Spider-Man um, knows Todd McFarlane. And okay. probably one of the biggest issues that, or if not the biggest issue that Todd McFarlane um, did in his early career is Amazing Spider-Man number 300, which is the first appearance of Venom, even though. McFarlane argues that it was 299 because he showed him in there at the end of the book. But first full appearance of Venom recognizes Amazing Spider-Man 300. So that's like a Holy Grail book from, you know, the the 80s. And I found two of them in the collection. And I was like, I didn't know they were in there when I purchased it. Um, That's the other thing. I kind of went in blind. I knew kind of sort of what kind of books were in there. But I kind of took a shot to say, hey, I'm going to buy this whole collection and I'll see, you know, what it is, because some of the books that I found in there, I was like, all right, I, I, I can't keep trying to buy these one at a time. It's just I'm going to go broke doing that. So let me see if the <laughs> the, the person I'm going to, you know, that had them would go for a, uh, just a bundle deal. And um, so I lowballed them an offer and i was like there's no way they're gonna take it and they they bid on it and then they're like oh by the way i have more stuff and i'm like oh so i got just much more than i bargained for all for one you know amazing price and um so i took that home and then of course the first thing that sandy said was are you 
you're not keeping all of these, are you? <laughs> and I said, no, I have a plan. <clears throat> and uh, I have part of a plan. Yes. And this is this was the uh, the part of the plan that came to fruition. So, yeah, I, I jump started an Instagram account um, and basically got out there in the same way that you guys um, are engaging with people with movies. And, you know, the way that we engage with each other is what I'm trying to build with comics, because yeah. much like movies, I mean, you know, we all that are, you know, have read comics in the past. Everyone that has read that has a connection to someone else who's read that book. So it's similar to seeing the same movie. You know, you have, that's a nostalgic memory. Um, it means something to you. The story means something to you. Characters mean something to you. They represent different parts of ourselves. So it's something cool to kind of connect with other people about. And, you know, it's it's not a bad way to, you know, make a buck here and there, you know, I'm, you know as well. Yeah. Ooh. And have fun along the way. I mean, that's so that's pretty much what it's all about. So that's my plan going into retirement. You know, like I said, I've got I've got a few more years before I get there. But once I do that, this will be my full time gig. Very nice. Very nice. So, cool. And yeah, if the boy if the boys are into comics or whatever, you know, they're always more than welcome. You know, uh. come on over and they can, you know, flip through stuff and see what they like. At Uncle Brian's pad, man. Yeah. Yeah, man. Uncle Brian will hook them up. I got yeah. I got more comics than they, they got time to read. So That's right, man. You know. Comics and donuts and other delicious. Yes, and eat good donuts. <laughs> That's right. Eat good. Yes. E-E-T-G-U-D. Come That's to Jersey. Come to Hamilton and get the best donuts on the planet. And tomato They're pie. not even paying me to say that. That's just fact. That's fact. Big facts. Big facts. <laughs> so this has been awesome, man. This has been sweeter than a need good donut. Um, I can't thank you enough for being on here and uh, and getting on here and talking about this. Got to have you back in Halloween season. Let's let's stay in touch about uh, outside of personal stuff with show stuff, so we can get you back on here with Sammy and and get to get you talking some uh, some splatter, man. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'd love to, man. And you know, real quick too, it's. It's an honor being on here. I mean, you know, I found you guys, you know, almost pretty much when you first started. I was driving a truck at the time. Um, you guys were always in my ear, keeping me company, doing overnights, plowing snow, driving over the road. Um, you know, it was it was, you know, welcome company. And then to, you know, turn that into the friendship um, that we have and now being on the cast, it's a nice full circle moment. And um yeah, man, it means a lot. It means a lot too, dude. I can't tell you. The feeling's very mutual. Uh, grateful for the the friendship, the brotherhood, the the camaraderie. Uh, grateful to to talk about Dark Man. <laughs> grateful <laughs> for all of it, man. Yep. Um. So yeah, listen. You have a good night, sir. And of course, uh, to everyone, thank you for listening. There's one thing left to say. Adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com